Okay, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, we're going to start at verse 14, but let me give you a context. And by the way, thank you for all getting up this morning um, early and struggling through our wet weather, which such as it is, you know. But uh, at any rate, Paul has visited Corinth and he's planted the church there about 51 AD. So about 50 years after Christ's birth, he, he visited Corinth on his second missionary journey. He actually stayed there for about 18 months planted the church, nurtured the church, grew the church. After 18 months, he left, went to Ephesus for a short period of time, and from there to Jerusalem. On his third missionary tour, he spent three years in Ephesus. And somewhere around 54 AD, a delegation from this church at Corinth that he had founded three years before, they came and said, we got troubles in River City. The church is in crisis and we have serious problems and we need some advice and some help. So this book, 1 Corinthians, was written to the church in Corinth about 54, 55 AD, and it was written to, to deal with their problems and to answer a series of specific questions. The first six chapters really deal with the obvious problems, and then from chapter seven through the end, it deals with the questions they had. They had lots of questions on marriage and relationships, all sorts of things. So the church in Corinth is currently a church in crisis. Whatever can go wrong seems to have gone wrong, but Paul addresses them as brethren, which is interesting, which indicates that even though they had troubles, they were genuine Christians. How problem was, however, they were Christians, they were not acting like Christians. There was a huge gap between their position and their practice, between their position and practice. Positionally, they were redeemed people. They were saved, they were in Christ, they were called to be saints, they were adopted into God's family, they were headed for heaven. These people were genuine Christians, positionally. But in practice, they were not living up to that position in Christ. They were living like the world, even though they were God's people. The outward symptoms of their problems, they had a lot of division, bickering, backbiting, infighting, quarreling, one-upsmanship, you know, pride, all the human conditions uh, that we see. They were exalting human wisdom. They were exalting human leaders uh, instead of God's wisdom and God's leaders. They had really broken up into a number of cliques. So the church had these various cliques and subgroups that said, well, I follow Paul, ain't he great? No, well, I follow Apollos and he's a great speaker and other people. So I follow Peter, he's the pillar and the rock of the church. And then the really dangerous runs were, we just follow Christ, right? We are more spiritual than all of you folks. So there was a lot of pride and arrogance and self-centeredness going on in this church. What had really happened, they'd taken their eyes off Jesus and they were trusting and worshiping their, quote, human heroes. So Paul takes them back in chapter 1 and reminds them that they've been saved by Jesus Christ. They weren't saved by any human effort. Christ alone had saved them. And he tells them, you've been operating on worldly wisdom. You've been trusting in human wisdom to make decisions about how to live your life. And Paul says, there's an infinite gap between God's eternal wisdom and finite, limited, fallen human wisdom. And you need to be depending on and trusting in God's wisdom and stop getting counsel from human fallen advisors, and they were getting their counsel from the world, unfortunately, at that point. And of course, in our world today, this is very, very, very applicable. Uh, we're inundated by human wisdom, right? 24-7, you have electronic devices, you get social media, you get the news feeds, you get the media, you get the political commentary, you get the editorials, you get advertising, right? And all of that input is what? Most of it is human wisdom. Here's what you need to buy. Here's why you need to buy it. Here's what you need to vote for. Here's why you need to vote. All of this human wisdom, not necessarily godly wisdom. Now, worldly wisdom is by definition foolish because it rejects God. And God is the source of all wisdom. So wisdom that doesn't take God into account by definition is folly. So the church at Corinth has been thinking like the world, believing like the world, and therefore, they're going to act like the world, and they were acting like the world. I mean, it was, you know, fight night on Wednesday night at church. So what these Corinthians believers had discovered was that following Jesus was not necessarily easy. 
Some people come to Christ and they believe, well, once I come to Christ, he's magically going to take all my troubles and my problems away. And actually, the truth is, when you turn away from sin and you turn to Christ, your life becomes harder, not easier. Just in case no one ever told you this, let me break the news to you. Before you follow Jesus, who are you following? The world around you, right? You are going the same direction as the world. You believe the same things as the world. You behave the same way as the world. So before Jesus, there's not much friction between you and the world, right? You were just kind of going the same direction at that point. Same with the Corinthians. Now, when you follow Jesus, and when the Corinthians followed Jesus, they began swimming upstream. They began swimming against the current of the world. John MacArthur says that Christians are like spiritual salmon, right? Salmon migrate upstream. They don't float downstream. You know when salmon float downstream? When they're dead salmon, right? If you're living, you're swimming upstream and you're going against the current and it's hard work. You see those salmon jumping over those weirs trying to get upstream. It's very, very difficult to go against the grain. It's very, very difficult to be rejected by the world as a fool for following Jesus. So the Corinthian church has taken the path of least resistance, right? And they're kind of bringing the world's philosophy into the church, and that's how they're doing business. So Christians, our life is difficult, first of all, for external reasons. We're going against the grain of the world. That's the external pressure. But our life is also difficult because of an internal pressure, and that's called you're going against the grain of your own sin nature. So when you follow Jesus, you're going against the grain of the world, but you're also going against the grain of your own internal sin nature. You know this, I'm just review. All of us are born in sin. We all inherited Adam's and Eve's fallen nature that rebels against God and embraces sin. We sin because it's our nature to sin. It's our spiritual DNA before Jesus. It's our old sinful Nature. Now, when Jesus comes into your life, he gives you a new nature, a new DNA. What did, what did Jesus say? If any man, Paul said, he wrote later, if any man is in Christ, he or she is a new creature. We have a new nature, a new DNA. In John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus what? Unless one is born again, one cannot see the kingdom of God, that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So when we come into God's spiritual family, when we're born into God's spiritual family, we get God's DNA. He gives us his nature. So now we have a new nature and that is exemplified by the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes inside and begins to transform us. So before you came to Christ, you just had one nature. Now you have a new nature. Your new nature hates sin and desires to please God. See, you got a problem. Before you had one nature and you sinned. That was all the choice you had. Before Christ, you have no choice. You were born in sin, you're going to sin. Now you have a divine desire to please God and you also have divine power to conquer sin because you have the Holy Spirit in you. But you still have your old nature. So we now have inside you a new nature that follows Jesus, and an old nature that still wants to sin, right? Before Christ, you were at home in this world. Now with Christ, this world is alien. Before Christ, you were independent from God, and now you're submissive to God, right? Before Christ, you had one nature, the old fallen sinful nature, and now you have two natures, your old sinful nature, plus your new spiritual nature that's given to you by God at the moment of salvation. You know what that's called? Warfare between the old and the new. Here's the principle. Our old nature loves sin. Our new nature loves God. The one you feed will dominate your life. See, we think, well, I come to Christ, no more problems. No, 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 no. You now have more problems. You have divine power, but you have more problems because your old nature is going to war against your new nature. Your new nature wants to please God. God hates sin. Your old nature loves sin. You've got warfare inside you every day you live, and it's your choice which one to feed and which one 
will dominate your life at that point. Paul illustrates this struggle. It's a very, very difficult struggle in Romans chapter 7. He says, and this is the Apostle Paul, probably somewhere within the next two years of this time frame. He's a mature Christian, been a Christian for years. He says, for the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. We can relate to that, right? Amen. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. We have these two natures. But I see a different law in the member of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. He's talking about the conflict between the nature that God gave us, the nature that desires to please God, and the old Adamic nature, the fleshly fallen nature that we got from Adam and the warfare between these two. And every one of us as Christians deals with this conflict every day. If you're not aware that there is a conflict with sin inside you, then you've probably already lost the battle, right? Someone once said, I can resist anything but temptation. Boy, howdy. That's the whole point, right? Resisting temptation means war against temptation. Yielding means surrendering to temptation. There's no sin in being tempted. The sin comes in surrendering to the temptation. So this daily struggle with sin that you and I have is actually really, really, really healthy. Because if you're struggling with sin, it demonstrates that you've got God's spirit inside you convicting you of sin. Wanting to make you holy, wanting to make you like Jesus. If there's no struggle with sin in your life, then one of two things. You don't belong to Jesus or you're already in heaven. Because when you're in heaven, there's no struggle with sin. Down here, you and I will struggle with sin until we go home. That's the nature of this life. Because you have the old nature that God is not going to take away until you get to heaven. But you decide every day of your life which nature to feed and which one to starve. And the world keeps bumping into you and say, feed me, feed me, feed me, like the old movie. What's the old movie? Little Shop of Horrors. Feed me, yeah. The old nature is like that plant. Uh, never enough. Feed me. Always wants more. And the world will feed the old nature. And you say, how come I'm struggling so much with sin? Well, maybe we need to starve the source. Cut off the blood supply. When you surrender to God every day, what happens is he gives you more and more power to battle and conflict and wage that war against sin successfully. So there are three phases in our interaction with sin. Three phases. At the moment of salvation, at the moment you cry out to God and surrender your life to Jesus Christ, he takes away the penalty of sin. That's the first P. He takes away the penalty of sin. Jesus has paid our sin debt, and now we are not guilty. Amen. Justification, just as if I never sinned. So that's at the moment of salvation. God declares us just, and he takes away the penalty of sin. When we go to heaven, where Chad is now, we will be free from the very presence of sin. In heaven, there'll be no contact with sin, and ultimately the memory of sin will be no more. That's called glorification. So you have justification and glorification. In between those two is where Christians live today here on earth. We've been declared just. The penalty of sin's been paid for. We're headed for heaven where the glory of no sin, freedom from the presence of sin is. And right now we're in this battle with sin here on earth. And God's goal is to make us more and more and more like Jesus. Progressively more and more like Jesus. He wants to make us holy. He wants to sanctify us, which is the name we give a process of, of progressive holiness. And every day God gives us power to do battle against sin and win. But the battle is going to continue until we go home. Sometimes we get tired of the battle and we say, can't we just compromise and call a truce? Those are the sweetest words Satan ever heard. Satan would love to do a deal with you. Just don't follow the shepherd so closely. Just be a little less obedient and I won't bother you so much. If you're in warfare, you're making a difference against the kingdom of Satan and he's going to harass you. That's life. 
right? But you have the power to win this war, but we have to use it. Right now, this Corinthian church is losing the battle with sin. They're influenced by the external world, they're impacted by their own sin nature, and the visible symptoms of their problem is they're fighting and quarreling and arguing and divisions, etc. But the root problem is their old spiritual DNA. It's pride and self-centeredness, and it's all about me, and it's not about Jesus. And that's the opposite of the gospel, which exalts God and not humans. The gospel does not reveal humans as wise and good and generous and powerful, but it reveals humans as weak and selfish and dependent, and that's why the cross is an offense to the world. The world views the gospel as foolish, but God uses the weakness of the world, the human wisdom, to exalt himself. Now, Paul divides the world into two groups, as we've already talked about. The saved, those who are in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and the unsaved or the lost, who are not. As one old Southern pastor once noted, everybody falls in one of two camps, the saints and the ain'ts, right? <laughs> However, in our passage today, Paul is actually going to be describing three kinds of people. The natural man, the spiritual man or woman, and the carnal man. Rob's going to put a chart on screen for you here to illustrate this progression, if you will. And I want you to notice that everything on the left-hand side is unsaved. To the left of the cross is, is what we call natural man or natural infant or whatever. Those are the not yet Christians. They don't know Jesus Christ yet. Of course, the conversion occurs at the cross, and then we go to the saved side of this mountain. We start off as a spiritual infant, we grow, and we ultimately mature. Paul starts off to the left of this chart, and he says in verse 14 of chapter 2, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So he's describing the natural man as the non-Christian, the non-safe person. And natural here literally means a person of the senses, a man of the senses. They only trust in themselves. They only trust in what they can comprehend with their own minds. They do not follow Jesus, the light of the world, and therefore they are living in darkness. Satan has blinded their eyes. He's held them captive. They think they're free. They're really in bondage. They are lost, but they do not want to be found because they're convinced they're not lost, right? I know what I'm doing. They are controlled not by the Spirit of God, but by their own human desires. They are intensely self-centered and they see no need of God. And this describes every single one of us before Jesus met us. And you know people who do not yet know Jesus, right? That was you and I before Jesus Christ met us. So the gospel appears as nonsense to the natural man. The gospel makes no sense to someone who only trusts in their own sense. They have not the ability to perceive that. The gospel requires God's wisdom to understand a natural man rejects God's wisdom. Says, I don't need any insight, I got it figured out. My little three and a half pound brain has got the universe dialed in, we're good to go. Don't need God, don't need any help. So the unsaved person not only will not understand the gospel, they cannot understand the gospel. Paul says there it's impossible for them to understand it on their own. It requires the Holy Spirit to discern spiritual truth and apply it to life. And most of the world falls into this camp, right? Jesus said the road to destruction is wide and many there are that find it. And the road, the gate to life is narrow and few there are that find it. Few. We should be praying that God will open the eyes of natural man and woman unsaved to the truth of the gospel. Now in contrast to the natural man who's unsaved on the left side, Paul next is going to discuss two categories of people who are saved. Everyone on the right-hand side of the cross is saved and is going to heaven. And he delineates them as the spiritual man and the carnal man, verse 15. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one, verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Here's the principle. 
The Holy Spirit reveals God's wisdom to those who study God's word and obey what they learn. The Holy Spirit reveals God's wisdom to those who study God's word and obey what they learn. Now the spiritual man or woman, as Paul is describing here, is a Christian whose mind is controlled by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. This is what we would call a mature Christian. They maintain daily fellowship with God. They ask him routinely, moment by moment, to guide their lives. They understand God's word in the Bible because they ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate their mind. You know, you have the Holy Spirit. Every time you read scripture, the Holy Spirit's going to illuminate your mind. But have you ever run across something you didn't understand? And what do you do at that point in time? The book of James says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask, ask of God. I can't tell you how many times I've read something I said, Lord, I think I understand this, but the reality is I think this is a mile deep and I haven't even got a quarter inch down on it. It's still true, but I understand so little of it. Please open my mind and show me. And when you kind of run across some part of scripture you don't understand, you pray that prayer and you write a date next to that passage. The day you prayed for wisdom. You come back in two or three weeks or two or three months and you'll read it and it will appear so obvious. Like, woda, a woda is a woe, duh, that's a woda. You all have wodas, right? You'll look at it and you go, whoa, that's pretty cool truth. And then, duh, how come I didn't see that before, right? That's the Holy Spirit that opened your eyes between those times, right? You're going to be doing this the rest of your life because we need the wisdom. Well, a spiritual person asks God for wisdom, and then when he, the Lord gives it to them, they act on it. They have the mind of Christ because they see the world from God's perspective. Because they ask to see the world from God's perspective. You know, we really need to see the lost from God's perspective. We need to see the church from God's perspective. We need to see ourselves from God's perspective, right? Because our perspective is pretty corrupted. So the spiritual person obeys what they know and what they know. They're doers of the word, not hearers. You know, if you want, how many of you want to know the mind of God? How many of you would like to just say, I'd like to know what God thinks? He's written it down. In English, if you have it in your lap, you have the mind of God in your lap. And we can't take time to find out what God says because we won't open the book. Really? You know what that says? You know what it tells me? Brad Hannock is incredibly arrogant if he thinks he can do it without God's wisdom. Are you kidding? Uh-huh. I do it every day. Every day. The number of things I do, just not praying or just not reading, just, just doing it, that says that I have confidence in my ability to get it done. That is major error in judgment. Paul says, pray about everything. Even the little phone calls, right? Pray about everything. He's written it down. If you need wisdom, ask the Holy Spirit who lives in you, give it to him. So now, in contrast to those who are Paul calls spiritual, Paul is now going to discuss those who are called carnal. And here's where life gets rather interesting. Chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Here's the principle. Passing through spiritual infancy is normal. Refusing to grow into spiritual maturity is sin. That's a pretty strong statement. I'm going to say it again. Passing through spiritual infancy is normal. Refusing to grow into spiritual maturity is sin. Now, Paul remembers referring to the Corinthian church as brethren. They're equals. They belong to the same spiritual family. They're going to heaven with him, etc., etc. And he says, even though you are Christians, even though you are in the local church, I can't speak to you as to spiritually mature people. Because you ain't. Right? The word for spiritual here means people that are controlled by the Holy Spirit. Every Christian is permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Every single one of us in this room has the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, 
permanently living in your life, right? The Holy Spirit's going to control your life. However, not every Christian is obedient to the indwelling Spirit. A mature Christian is one who lives their lives in dependence upon the Holy Spirit over a long period of time. Paul calls the Corinthians men of flesh. Flesh. Rob's going to show you the second chart. Progress of Christian's life. So if you start from the left, we have natural man unsaved, natural growth. They cross over, they become saved, and they begin in spiritual infancy, and they begin to climb the mountain to spiritual maturity, spiritual growth. And at some point in time, some people say, I like the crib, and I'm going to stay with my blankie as a spiritual infant. I want to be a Peter Pan Christian. I don't want to grow up. I'm never going to grow up. I like being coddled, right? You all know people like this, right? People of flesh. And sometimes people go backwards. They're up the mountain and they decide it's too hard up here. The battle's too tough. The air's too thin. I'm going back down where it's nice and safe and comfortable. Back in my spiritual crib. The Greek word for flesh here is sarkinos, S-A-R-K-A-N-O-S. It, it translates fleshly or carnal, carne, you know, carne and flesh. It denotes a Christian who does not follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, but follows their own selfish desires instead. A fleshly person is one who's controlled by the impulses of the flesh. They want to live independent of God, even though they're Christians. They live in the pig pen of sin, even though they are members of God's royal family. And one of the best illustrations of this, how many remember the, the parable of the prodigal son? Prodigal son had a heritage of royalty. Father loved the son. Father gave the son the inheritance. The son had heritage, parentage, family name, belonged to family as a member, as a son, and he decided to go live with the pigs. Right? Until he repented and came back. So a carnal Christian is one who is living by the flesh instead of by the spirit. And as a result, they remain a baby Christian. They remain a spiritual infant. And one of the most obvious descriptions of a baby is they are self-centered. Yes? All babies are self-centered. All infants are dependent on others and very self-centered. A baby's desires is all that matters to them, and your job as their parent and grandparent is to give them what they want. Yes? Amen. Amen. That's, their, that's their view of you. Your job is to give me what I want now. That's what babies do. Spiritual babies do the same thing. Babies tend to be very undisciplined. They never say no to themselves. Now, babies are some of God's most special miracles. They fascinate us, they captivate us, especially if they belong to us. If there are children and grandchildren, they are absolutely intoxicating. But babies require lots of care, and they make lots of messes. And we expect that from babies, right? That's the nature of infants. Now, there's an appropriate time for babies. And there's the time to outgrow babyhood, right? If an infant sucks their big toe, it's cute. If your teenager's still doing it, no longer cute. Adult who still sleeps in a crib is a sign that something is definitely wrong. Right? Now the same is true in the spiritual dimension. When someone first becomes a Christian, man, we are thrilled. Their exuberance, their faith, they're out there, they convict us. Sometimes they say stuff that's inappropriate or do stuff, but we go, well, they're, they're a spiritual infant. They don't know any better. They're going to grow in their faith and they'll outgrow this. If they don't, it's a sign that something's significantly wrong. And Paul says the same to the Corinthian church. He says, I can't even speak to you in adult spiritual language because you're still infants. I've taught you for 18 months. I would have expected you to have learned something and grown in 18 months. And by the way, after I left, the most eloquent speaker listed in the New Testament after Jesus is Apollos. And he became your pastor for the next two or three years. So you've had really good teaching and you are still spiritual babies. This is not good, right? The Corinthian church had chosen 
to remain in a prolonged state of spiritual infancy, and they were spiritually undeveloped because they were self-centered, selfish, not Christ-centered. Verse 2. He said, I had to give you milk to drink. Probably 1% milk because they couldn't handle the real milk, right? I had to give you milk to drink and not solid food for you were not yet able to receive it. Even de indeed, even now, he's saying four or five years later, you're not able to receive it. Babies need pretty simple food, right? Milk is very, very good source because they tend to choke on prime rib, not an appropriate choice of food for a baby. Most adults would starve to death if they only had milk. So diet is appropriate for the state of development you happen to be in at that point in time. Milk is good, but if it's the only thing in an adult diet, something's probably wrong. So Paul says, look, I can only feed you milk because you couldn't handle solid food. Spiritual milk, there's nothing wrong with spiritual milk, by the way. Peter says you should long for the milk of the word. So as, as believers, we never outgrow our desire for the milk of the word. But over and over in scripture, the Lord says, I want you to grow up to solid food. I want you to grow up to solid food. Milk is the very elementary level of spiritual truth. It's the basics, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you should grow up beyond that. God wants his children to graduate to stronger food, to solid food. And these Christians, these Corinthians, had probably been Christians for four or five years. They'd been around long enough to grow up, and they hadn't. And Paul's very concerned about that. By the way, most of you know this. Age alone is no guarantee of spiritual maturity. Right? How many of you know old fools? Yeah, we got some of those. Far too many Christians, especially in affluent America, choose to remain in spiritual infancy because they're comfortable there. They have been Christians for decades, and yet they're spiritual thumbsuckers. Some signs of spiritual babyhood in a believer include constantly needing others' advice and counsel. We all need advice. There's nothing wrong with asking for counsel. But day in, day out, day in, day out, day in, day out, for years and years and years and years. Depending on humans instead of taking it to the Lord. I can remember early in my spiritual walk, I had a problem, and what's my first thought? Make a phone call. Get some advice. Holy Spirit said, put down the phone and talk to me about it. If you need advice, your first counselor is the one who lives in you, the Holy Spirit. You talk to him before you talk to people. Always talk to the Lord before you talk to people. If you don't talk to the Lord before you talk to people, there's going to be some really stupid stuff coming out of your mouth. So you always talk to Jesus first. A spiritual baby doesn't feed themselves on God's word during the week. A spiritual baby depends on the pastor's milk bottle on Sunday mornings only. Well, you can get malnourished. And this church puts meat on the table, but you need to eat more than once every 168 hours. Yes? Amen. If you only ate once every 168 hours, it's going to have to be one whale of a meal, or you're going to die of starvation before next Sunday. Spiritual babies are only happy when they are the center of attention, just like physical babies, right? Many, many churches in our culture preach the simple gospel every week and only the simple gospel every week. Now, there's nothing wrong with a gospel message so people know how to be saved. No problem. But once you know how to be saved and you are saved, where do you go from there? How do you grow up? How do you mature in Christ? How do you become a disciple? How do you become more like Jesus? The gospel message tells you how to be saved. It doesn't tell you how to go on from there. Many Christians just want to hear a simple Bible story every week. They don't want to be challenged. They say, we don't need all that doctrinal stuff. Well, if God wrote it in the Bible, he wants us to know it so we can obey it. And that's hard work. Thinking biblically about life through the lens of the scripture is hard work, and God calls us to that hard work. Some people don't want to do that. It's like giving swimming lessons in a bathtub. 
Swimming lessons in a bathtub are okay for really small children, but it's not too useful when you're an adult. You need to be in a little deeper pool, not a bathtub, right? By the way, I need to say this, especially when you look at this chart on screen, if Rob's got that up for us, the second one. When God looks at your and my spiritual maturity, it's extremely important that he doesn't just look at where you are now. He looks at where you came from and the progress you're making. Some people have had a much harder life than others. You need to understand that. I have a friend who told me that her niece's primary job as a Christian was to stay sober. I said, well, now that she's sober, what's she going to do with the rest of her life? She says, no, no, you don't understand. That is her life's work, to stay sober. That requires everything she has to be obedient to the Lord to stay sober today. That if she stays clean and sober the rest of her life, that's her life work, and Jesus will be pleased with that. That really set me back because I've never struggled with an addiction. That's 24 by 7 battle. Warfare 24 by 7 with that issue. And of course, Chad dealt with that with pain 24 by 7. That's a huge, huge battle. So some people have a much harder life than others. You know, Marin's dad sent an article to her some years ago and it says, some people are born on third base. They have no trouble getting home, right, and scoring runs, and they can't figure out how come some people can't get it done because they're not even in the ballpark yet. Some people were born on third base. Most of us in America have had exposure to the gospel from the time we were children to some degree or another. Many of us have been in the faith for decades. We have access to the Word of God. We have access to first-class teaching. We were born on third base, Amen. right? So God has different expectations of our spiritual maturity, how high we should be climbing because of where we started. Scripture says what? To whom much is given, much is required. You and I are on that list. We have been given much. Our goal should be encourage each other, Hebrews 6.1, to press on to maturity. But each person's at their own stage on that journey, and God will be the one to do that judging, not you and I. So wherever you are on this growth to spiritual maturity, your goal is to encourage people to continue to climb. And if there's a spiritual infant that needs your help and encouragement, that's what God calls you to do. Galatians 6.1 says, if any of one stumbles, you who are spiritual, go and restore them in a spirit of gentleness. So in order to become spiritually mature, what's it take? It takes solid food and exercise, and the writer of Hebrews contrasts the difference between a baby Christian and a mature Christian. Hebrews 5, verse 11 to 14. Concerning him, he's talking about the authority of Jesus Christ illustrated through the priesthood of Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. By the way, that is not a compliment. All right. You become dull of hearing. That means getting spiritually stupid. Just saying. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant verse 14 but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil here's the principle spiritual maturity is the result of a solid diet of god's word and much practice in applying god's truth to human life Spiritual maturity is the result of a solid diet of God's word and much practice in applying God's truth to human life. When you read the description of the Hebrew audience, you're persuaded that they seem to be regressing, not progressing, right? They seem to be going backwards from more maturity to less maturity. At one point in time, they appear to have been able to handle solid food, and now it seems like they need milk again, you know? 
In the past, they could digest solid biblical teaching, but now they only want to hear sermonettes for Christianettes, right? Like the little light happy stuff, right? They have chosen milk and rejected solid food. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like eating pureed pizza. Not exactly appetizing. Why would you go backwards when you didn't have to? These immature Christians seem to have forgotten what they once knew, and now they need to go back and learn it all over again. You remember the principle? Use it or lose it. That is very true. What you practice grows stronger, and what you neglect decays and ultimately dies. And we know this in the physical realm. We go, yeah, I go to the gym three days a week to kind of take care of the machinery so it doesn't completely fall apart. It's going to fall apart, but I'd like to slow it down a little bit, etc. Your relationship with Jesus is not static. It's either growing or it's decaying. Your relationship with your spouse is not static. It's either growing or it's dying. And if you don't know which, you're in deep doo-doo. Right? You need to be working at that relationship, pursuing it. Feed that which should be fed and starve that which should be starved. So a mature Christian is one who has chosen to follow Jesus out of the shallow wading pool where the water is up to your ankles and go into the pool and swim in deep water, trusting the Lord to carry you through that. Just a question. As parents, have you ever been surprised at your children's behavior even when they knew better? <laughs> ever been surprised by what they did? How many of you said, you know better than this? You were not raised this way. We didn't raise you like this, right? As you go pay the bail or whatever it happens uh. to be, right? <laughs> Here's one that sticks me. Have you ever done something foolish even though you knew better? Amen. I resemble that, as my friend Al says. I'm just, yeah. So Paul is rebuking these Corinthians for choosing to remain immature, even though they knew better. Verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3. For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos. Are you not mere men? Here's the principle. Sinful behaviors are evidence of spiritual maturity. So grow up. Yeah, I know. I had to put that in there, didn't I? Paul is not happy that they are still operating on the flesh, in the flesh, as opposed to by the Spirit. Paul says, you think you're so mature, let's look at your behavior and that will demonstrate your level of immaturity. You're still fighting, you're still quarreling, you're still bragging, you still have all these cliques. Grow up. In Christ, press on for maturity. This jealousy and strife is evidences of your spiritual babyhood and it's time to grow up and stop doing what you know is wrong. You know, the application for us is pretty real. The truth is, every single Christian struggles with their own fleshly desires. Amen? Every day. The world continues to influence us and impact us, and our internal sin DNA that we're going to live with and battle with continues to, to tempt us. And Romans 8, 28 to 29, tells us God's purpose in all of this, and most of you know this. It says God's goal, God causes what? All things to work together for good. And you say, okay, well, what's good? Because most of us say God causes all things to work together for my comfort. Ooh, we could buy that one, right? No, he says God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Those are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So God defines good for you and me as anything that makes you like Jesus. Anything that progressively shapes your life and conforms you to the image of his son, that makes you an attitude and action, character and conduct, more like Jesus, that's good. 
And it says God's going to cause all things in your life to that end. He's going to arrange the circumstances, the relationships, the health status, the financial conditions. Everything in your life is arranged so that you will become more and more like Jesus. And that's what God defines as good. And it's usually not comfortable. Yes? Usually not comfortable. I was in Mammoth this week skiing with some friends. And one a pastor friend of mine said, you know... He said, I, I think of Romans 8, 28 kind of like a baking analogy. And I said, how are you going to get Romans 8, 28 into the kitchen? You know, what's this work like? So God is shaping every aspect of our life <clears throat> just like a, a baker who makes a cake, right? And God is baking a delicious cake. It's called your life and my life. And he uses multiple ingredients in that cake, and not every ingredient that God is using to make this cake makes sense to you and me. And we argue with him about it. We tell him, God, you got to change the recipe. Why would you put that in the cake mix of my life? I didn't need that, right? Sometimes those ingredients don't even taste good. Have you ever eaten raw egg? Or baking soda by itself? Or vanilla extract concentrated or just plain old flour all by itself and yet if you're going to make a cake those ingredients have to go in to that cake and God the master baker who's preparing his unique recipe for your life knows exactly the ingredients that need to go into your cake mix and we don't understand a lot we think we know what God's ingredients should look like, and we think we, the sequence that he should follow in baking our cake, we should tell him. Right? God knows the recipe. God knows the ingredient list. God knows the prep time. God knows the mixing speeds. Some of your lives have been in the blender for a while. Yeah? And we're going, Lord, can, you know, how come you have to whip the frosting? Just crank down the RPMs. You know, I'm tired of this mixed up stuff here. You know, this hurts. God knows what gets mixed with what and when. The people God brings in your life are part of the ingredients for the cake that he's making to make you like Jesus. God knows the oven temperature. How many of you ever said, God, this business is about 350 degrees. Can you just turn the temperature down? How about to 150? You ever baked a cake at 150? Doesn't come out too well. The Lord says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't understand. I have the cake in mind. Here's the outcome I want. You're going to look like Jesus, and the temperature in the oven has to be 350 for 50 minutes to make that work. And then we say, well, how about if you just bake it for 15 minutes and not 50? No. And then he takes us out of the oven and we cool. You have to cool the cake off before you frost it, right? And God knows the purpose of the cake. We argue with it. You know, this cake is all about me. He said, no, no, this cake's about others. This cake's about serving the needs of others. And you go, I, this cake's all about me. It's not about them, right? God knows the purpose of the dinner where the cake's going to be eaten. God knows who the guests are at the dinner where the cake's going to be eaten. God knows which guests at the dinner are allergic to what ingredients and what to put in and what not to put in. You get the picture? Your life is far more orchestrated by God than we even can dream because he's got the cake at the end. His goal is to make us like Jesus. And everything he does in our life is that goal. And when you look at the chart that Rob put up, spiritual maturity ultimately is Christ-likeness. The goal that the Lord is taking your life while you're here on earth is to make you more and more like Jesus. And that's spiritual maturity. Completeness in Christ. Paul said, I've want every one of you to be complete in Christ, mature in Christ. If you want to know what God's goal for your life is, it's real simple. That you will look, sound, believe, and behave exactly like Jesus. Everything in life that he does 
is designed for that purpose. He causes all things to work together for that goal. And of course, our knowledge about how God does, why he does what he does is very limited. But we do know the heavenly baker. And we have tasted his cakes before, haven't we? How many have seen a 90-year-old saint who looks and sounds and acts like Jesus? Isn't that incredible? You see their spirit. You see how they respond to adversity and struggle with loss. And they are filled with grace and the glory of God. And it's just beautiful. And you say, Lord, that's a little human picture. And you read the life of Christ and you see how he responded to very negative circumstances. That's his goal. And he's not going to quit in your life until he gets you there. And when you can't see his hand, you trust his heart. God says to you and me, don't stay a spiritual infant. Press on to maturity. I have a plan. I want to take you up the mountain and make you like Jesus. Stop being a self-centered baby. And that means we have some uncomfortable decisions because God calls us every day to do things that are not necessarily comfortable. By the way, if all you want is comfort, that's a recipe for immaturity. Right? That's a recipe to be a Peter Pan Christian. I only want to do the fun stuff. Well, that's not maturity. Maturity is doing what needs to be done, doing what God calls us to do, and trusting him for the joy. And I promise you, obedience to God is always more joyful than whatever this life can promise you. There is no joy in life like walking with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So I'm going to encourage us and enjoin us, as God does, press on to maturity. <clears throat> Become conformed to what Jesus has for you. Tom's going to come now and lead us. And while he's coming, I'm going to review with you. Number one, <clears throat> our old nature loves sin. Our new nature love God. The one you feed is the one that will dominate your life. Number two, the Holy Spirit reveals God's wisdom to those who study God's word and then obey what they learn. Studying is easy. Obedience, it's where you put it into practice. Number three, passing through spiritual infancy is normal. Refusing to grow into spiritual maturity is sin. It's resisting what God has for you. Number four, spiritual maturity is the result of a solid diet of God's word and much practice and applying God's truth to human life. And lastly, spiritual behaviors are evidence of spiritual maturity. So, grow up. I love you all. Now that you know...